I think that this kind of theater can help us, the puppeteers, but also the audience, look at things in a fresh way, analyze our situation anew, and come up with some fresh proposals for how we want to live and how we think about our situation. That's Josh Krugman from Bread and Puppet Theater. I'm Michael Sokol, and this is Same Wavelength, a platform where I have conversations with artists about the relationship between their creative work and our current political moment. Same Wavelength is a place where artists speak their truths. As I said, my name is Michael Sokol. Hello, Michael Sokol. Hey, Michael. Good morning, Michael. Hi, Michael. I'm a former radio DJ who wanted to start a platform where I could have open conversations with creative folks discussing how they're processing what's going on right now politically and talk with artists about how they choose to use their platforms during these divisive and confusing times. Josh Krugman is my guest on this episode of Same Wavelength. This is Josh from Bread and Puppet Theater. Josh is a musician, poet, and puppeteer who has been with Bread and Puppet Theater for over five years. Based in Glover, Vermont, Bread and Puppet is one of the oldest nonprofit self-supporting theatrical companies in the country. They started back in 1963 in New York City's Lower East Side by Peter Schumann, who is still the director of Bread and Puppet today. They started doing puppet shows for children while also putting on productions as a way to protest bad housing conditions in New York City. Their iconic puppets became fixtures in the protests against the Vietnam War. As the name suggests, they offer audience members a piece of homemade bread at their performances because they believe that bread and theater belong together. Josh and I talked last summer, and we talk about why theater and puppetry are great art forms for delivering strong political messages, and how art can offer us possible solutions to some of our social and political problems. Anything that's referenced throughout the conversation, you can find all that listed in the show notes for this episode at samewavelengthpodcast.com. And that's all there because I hope Same Wavelength can be for you like it is for me, a place of discovery. Here's my conversation with Josh Krugman from Bread and Puppet Theater on Same Wavelength. And thank you so much for listening. Bread and Puppet, this is Josh. Hello, Josh. It's Michael Sokol. Hey, Michael. How's hey, it going? Good. Thank you for your flexibility and your persistence. Oh, of course. Thank you so much for some of your time. I really am, am uh, excited and, and grateful for the opportunity to talk to you today. My pleasure. So Bread and Puppet has been one of the oldest nonprofit self-supporting theatrical companies in the country um, and throughout Bread and Puppet's career and in history uh, they've always drawn inspiration from America's nonstop history of genocide and war and exploitation around the world and here we are now I'm wondering if you feel like right now we're living at a time when art is being called into action more than it maybe has been in our recent past yes I think that all of us in this country are being called into action to stand up for each other, to stand up for our neighbors who are being deported, to stand up for our neighbors who are being evicted, to stand up for the environment, which is being contaminated for public spaces that are being sold to the highest bidder. And as artists, we have a particular tool set, a particular set of of modes that we use to stand up and speak out on on all of those pressing questions. 
are you feeling more of an urgency at Bread and Puppet now than you know in previous years? We've always felt an urgency. I think, unfortunately, in the United States, as you said, there's never been a lack of subject matter for protest theater and for protest in general. And in some ways, during the Obama years, there was a, a sense of urgency that was heightened by the fact that it seemed that a, a large sector of the population was eager to believe that the administration had everyone's best interest at heart and that they didn't have to pay attention and didn't have to protest and didn't have to defend defend their rights or seek more information about the nefarious dealings of the U.S. government at home and abroad. Right, and it, so, it's, it sort of created this complacency. Exactly, exactly right. And that, and living in the midst of that complacency during the Obama years, I think, gave many of us a heightened sense of urgency to to communicate about what was going on, all the deportations that were happening, all of the fracking and pipelines and droning, drones, drone strikes, and continuation of the Bush wars um, and meddling in in Latin American elections. The overthrow of the elected leader of Honduras and his replacement by a military, a military dictatorship, all of that. And of course, in the Trump years, it's different. Um, you know, we are more resistance has become not something that radical puppeteers are only talking about, but there's been a sort of mainstreaming of, of the language of, of resistance and protest, which is I think a good thing, provided that it doesn't lead to a sort of facile, a sort of facile engagement that doesn't really question power. But you know, things are also unquestionably darker now. The just the emboldening of sort of the worst ideological and social forces in our society by the by the Trump administration and the emboldening of of law enforcement and border enforcement to be even more cruel and, and unreasonable in their enforcement of problematic laws that exist is definitely, you know, contributing to an environment of public outrage that into which our work, uh, into which it, it is different to work in the way that we do. In a way that maybe more people are, are open to it, do you think? Or more open to conversations? Or, or, or how, how, is, how does it feel different? I think that people are... It's, it's a good question. In what way does it feel different? It's it's hard to generalize about broad social trends and about the ethos that one inhabits because yeah. it's all so subtle. Yeah. And yet, I think that I have felt a hunger and a gratitude in our audiences that is more striking in the past couple of years. A mm. sense that this work is precious and needed and to have a chance in public to experience, for example, the ritual burial of the gun in, in the presence of 300 other people or 500 other people or 50 other people. It is a powerful thing and something that I think people are newly aware of the power of these sort of collective experiences of 
the possibility of social and political transformation. And to have a theater that is presenting those possibilities for transformation and, and even enacting them in space and time is something that people feel consciously or subconsciously an enormous hunger for and an enormous gratitude for receiving. I've heard this term possibilitarian uh, thrown around in conjunction with the work uh, that you do at Bread and Puppet Theater. And I'm wondering, what does that that mean exactly in terms of the work you present? Yeah, so possibilitarianism is this idea that there are a thousand alternatives to the wasteful and destructive habits of capitalism. And that they are already being practiced in various places by various people and groups of people. And we, they need to be seen for what they are as alternatives, as possibilities. And they need to be further experimented with, amplified, supported, celebrated, strengthened. And it is also the idea that a post-capitalist world, you might also say a just and peaceful world that supports human flourishing and ecological flourishing is possible and that we can, we can create it by experimenting with the possibilities uh, for social and political and economic transformation in our everyday lives. I think that our shows are possibilitarian on a couple different levels. They, in the most concrete way, exemplify possibilitarian engagement with objects. That is, we have some mask or some puppet, and when we're developing a show, we figure out what can it do and what can it not do. In other words, what are its possibilities? And the show results from the possibilities that we find in objects. And that's sort of a microcosm of the work that we need to do politically and socially. We need to say, you know, we got cows, we got a river, we got this group of people with these talents. You know, what can we do? How can we help each other out? How can we create a just and sustainable community? You mentioned kind of this mainstream effort towards activism or resistance. And so while mainstream efforts are are good, you know, as you kind of said, like, I think those are that's good that people are, are starting to pay attention more on a broader scale. You know, when something gets mainstreamed, Mike, you know, the concern I, I want to bring up is sort of, well, who's left out? Like, is, are, is someone is it at the expense of people of color, of people of marginal income um, uh-huh. and that you know that was a a really profound question of mainstream activism from the beginning of the Trump administration and i think that's a really important one to keep coming back to is is it mostly middle class 
white people? And if so, how come? And so with that, I guess I want to bring that to Brett and Puppet. And, you know, you guys are, are very open about this democratization of art and theater and making it accessible and affordable to everyone. Um, yeah. And so I, I guess I'd like to ask you if you can speak about Brett and Puppet in the ways Bread and Puppet fosters inclusivity for all people, regardless of race, economic status, sexuality, and creates the space both in in this in the theater, but also through through the work that you that you choose to present. Well, we try to make our work inclusive in a, in a few different ways. We try to play by donation whenever possible, and to say no one is turned away for lack of funds, even if we provide a sliding scale of suggested donations. And we often arrive in a city and put out a call for volunteers and teach a group of people who may have never, not only never worked with Bread and Puppet, but may have never worked in a theater or a performance context at all, to perform with us. And we rehearse, and the next day we perform a show together. And that is a powerful thing because if we are supposing that these shows are providing a sort of ritual of political and social transformation that is including the public in that uh, as more than spectator is increases the power of that transformative enactment. And in the summer, we have an apprenticeship here in Glover where people come from all over the world to work and live and learn and perform with us. And that apprenticeship is on a pay-what-you-can basis. So we are, are trying to... We're, we are non-proprietary about our way of making theater, making art. In fact, we're quite the reverse. We want people to steal it and take it and do it. Uh, if they find it useful, and uh, we are always teaching people how to make simple, cheap puppets out of discarded materials, cardboard and wood and wire and plastic, um, wherever we go, and we hope that people all over the place will take up these sort of very cheap methods for making visually striking, politically powerful public art. So when you're putting together a performance, how much are you thinking about how it's going to be received by an audience? Like, are you ever concerned about your message being too confrontational or um, head-on or overt? When we're creating work, our primary concern, in my experience, is that we're making something that is aesthetically powerful. Something that when you look at it, it holds your eye and pleases your eye even, confronts your eye in a strong way, and your ear. And we often start with just images and 
things that happen with objects, and then we add the political content that we want to those images. It's obviously a give and take, but it's fair to say that the composition of images and, and happenings of objects is primary. And then once we do combine things and have some sort of thing with a narrative or a political message, we want it to be uh, we want it to be clear in a certain way. We want people to understand what we're talking about, and not only people who've read Brecht or Marx or Benjamin. We want anybody to understand. That said, we don't want to be pedantic and overly obvious or overly serious or belittle the intelligence of our, of our audience by rubbing things in too much. So there's a lot of humor in our shows, a lot of absurdity in our shows, a lot of abstraction in our shows. And I think that humor, absurdity, and abstraction are really good ways to leaven the heavy-hitting political subject matter, to allow it to be less pedantic. Do you feel like you're able to present your ideas and engage with people from different political backgrounds and ideologies? Yes. I think that those, that those things, that humor is a great way to open people up to hearing something that they might otherwise not allow themselves to hear. And also that a strong image, uh, a striking image, something that just catches your eye and holds your attention, can open you to hearing or seeing or experiencing something that you might not have otherwise thought out. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things I'm thinking a lot about is with our culture right now, there being this what feels like a very extreme polarization of political sides and we're all kind of protecting our, our tribes and our bubbles yeah. more than maybe we have been in, in recent past. And we're all kind of turning against each other, which is an obvious tactic of the administration. Yeah. Um, I just sometimes am worried about there not being enough dialogue cross party lines or cross ideological yeah. boundaries. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, maybe this is a, a good way to kind of get a little background on you. I, I read a really, what I thought was a very moving interview that you did, I think at your time at, Wesleyan talking about your time at Deerfield Academy and and how your time there I mean you basically were surrounded by uh, people with pretty different political and ethical outlooks than you um, in having in having to explain your own beliefs and values you actually took that as a as a really valuable opportunity and maybe we can maybe we can talk about that a little bit um, and maybe how that translates to now sure uh, wow, I'm really impressed that you found that. I love that interview, man. That was really, yeah, it was beautiful. Um, I don't even, you know, you're making me want to go find it. Yeah, well, um, I can send you the link. <laughs> that would be great. Um, I think that we all become better thinkers and kinder people when we have to explain to ourselves, why we think what we think and why we do what we do. Um, and often we can explain those things best to ourselves when we have to explain them to others. And when somebody says, why do you think what you think or why do you do what you do in an, in an ethical sense in particular? And at its best, 
I think that this kind of theater can help us, the puppeteers, but also the audience, look at things in a fresh way, uh, analyze our situation anew, and come up with some fresh proposals for how we want to live and how we think about our situation. Yeah, I, I uh, reminds me of one of the Bread and Puppet posters I have up in my room, Resistance of the Heart Against Business as Usual. That's it. Pennsylvania, we were heading through when we pulled off, and you know, the exit on the highway said gas station, and we needed fuel, and we pulled off, and it was one of those situations which it doesn't tell you how far away the gas station was. And it was a few miles in, and we had been, you know, sort of hitting colleges and college towns mostly, or and, and bigger cities as we went across Pennsylvania and Ohio last fall. Um, and we, were in the, we ended up in this little town with probably a third of the yards had Trump signs in them. And we parked in this gas station, and these two women who were working there were super happy to have this unexpected, crazy-looking daffodil bus arrive at their station. And they wanted to, like, know if we had any videos of our work so they could see, you know, what we were about. And, you know, it's very likely that those two women voted for Donald Trump, right? Yeah. Um, but they were also so excited and happy to see the bus. They thought it was so cool. So that's, speaking of like possibilitarianism, like that's sort of, I see possibility in that kind of interaction. You know, the ways in which the everyday can be upset in subtle and often joyful ways um, and, that, and the social effects of that. I'd love to talk about some of the specific performances that you're working on now, but maybe first we can zoom out a little bit and, um, you know, kind of talk about the, the ancient art form that is theater and puppetry and how Bread and Puppet relates to that and brings these ancient art forms uh, into today. Yeah, so Bread and Puppet is both a pre- and post-fine art theater, and it's also sometimes succeeds in masquerading as fine art. Um, it harkens back to the folk theater forms that have existed in just about every part of the world that I know of, where mask and music and object and image and text are used together to create a theatrical experience that often is also not distinguishable from ritual and has a distinct social function, either in marking a part of the year or a certain social occasion or telling a story that is part of the identity of a people or a place. And Bread and Puppet's work has, has all of those attributes, this sort of way that the different arts 
sculpture, dance, painting, theater, poetry, music, engineering even, um, can all reinforce each other and create a powerful aesthetic and also ethical and ritual experience. And it's post-fine art in the sense that, and post-modern art in the sense that Peter and we are all students of people like Brecht and John Cage and the Fluxus movement. And in that sense, Bread and Puppet is both a student of and an actor within 20th century avant-garde. And those influences are very plain. German expressionism is... It's hard to see Peter's paintings without thinking about German expressionist painters. Yeah, maybe we can jump in and, and talk specifically about a bread and puppet performance maybe the grasshopper rebellion would that be a appropriate one sure and that draws inspiration from different revolutions throughout human history is that correct well originally that was the idea however uh, the <laughs> it's ever changing it's it's ever changing and we haven't really gotten to talking about revolutions very much yet okay so um, what are what are you talking about so this is a circus which for us means a fast-paced, colorful show performed in the round comprised of a series of acts on various subjects, often political, related to current events, and also often something funny or something beautiful for its own sake, or something absurd for its own sake. Uh, some of the political content that's in the circus so far are there is a cheerleader act in which the Supreme Court of the United States announces that they are now fascist and they have a sort of a cheer that incorporates some of the some of the recent decisions from upholding the Muslim ban to decisions about religious so-called religious freedom. Another act talks about, commemorates the, the deaths of more than 4,000 Puerto Ricans due to the neglect of the U.S. government and Puerto Rican authorities after Hurricane Maria. Bread and Puppet has a big Puerto Rican community and so we have some folks sing a song, a Puerto Rican bomba song and dance a bomba in the presence of some big puppets. There's another act in which uh, James Madison presents, who, who's uh, the framer of the Bill of Rights, the main framer of the Bill of Rights, produces the Second Amendment. A cow gets impregnated with the Second Amendment and gives birth to a gun. The gun is given to a population who destroy each other using it, and then we sing a song and do a funeral for the gun. Another act is, uh, contains a big painted banner 
memorializing those killed and injured in Israel's assaults on Gaza, on the, on the protesters in Gaza this spring. And the performers do a simple dance in the presence of those banners. So those are, the, those are some of the issues that we're taking on. Some of the acts of the circus, yeah. So when was the Grasshopper Rebellion Circus originally conceived? Every summer we make a new circus. And every winter Peter comes up with a title for the next summer circus. And over the course of the spring he collects ideas for what he thinks we should be talking about and what he thinks fits with the, the loose theme of the summer circus, which is always quite loose. Sometimes, in this case, there isn't even anything really to do with the original theme, except for grasshoppers, who turn out to be celestial grasshoppers. <laughs> and they're painted blue and white instead of green and brown. And they come in and save the day a bunch of times. And then the staff, the summer staff puppeteers come, the people who've been working with Bread and Puppet for a bunch of years and come back every summer to make shows, to make work with each other and with Peter. And they bring a lot of their ideas and issues from their communities. And so Peter's agenda sort of gets all mashed up with the staff's ideas and, and urgencies, and then we create a show together. Um, so it's a, pretty, it's a pretty collaborative process. It's very collaborative. And in fact, most of what gets into the circus is, is made by the puppeteers with often fairly light direction from Peter. Mm. But it is done sort of within the container of the themes that he, the, the title that he sets out and some of the themes that he thinks are important to address. And then on a, on a given basis, once, once the, say, the first show is, um, is performed, does it change? Will, will it evolve and change from there, or, or kind of, or it stays fairly consistent? It, it it changes every week. We perform the show every Sunday in our circus field here up in Glover, Vermont, and we every week we add acts and we cut acts and we work on the existing acts. We're also working on two or three other shows all the time. So some weeks we progress more in the circus than others, but we perform the circus between eight and ten times a summer, uh, and um, and it's our chance to, to really develop it. And then we later in the year we often tour it or develop it further in a residency in, in New York or Boston or Philadelphia or another nearby city. Mm. So by the time you, you, know, you tour the Grasshopper Rebellion Circus in the fall, it, it could be pretty different than when you originally performed it like the, it will, the first yeah. time in the summer. It will be it will be by necessity. Yeah. Um, different because the world will have moved on and and also because uh, hopefully we will have made better, snappier, smarter acts. <laughs> yeah. And the I'd like to maybe hear more so that that's obviously that's a that performance takes on a, a circus form. Yeah. Um, but you, you do, at Brandon Bubba, there's, there's a multitude of different forms that you, you kind of take on, that your performances can take on, right? Yeah. Um, so what are some other ones, uh, you know, other than, than circus? Well, we have another show, another type of show called an Insurrection Mass, which is to the Catholic funeral mass mm. what a circus is to Ringling Brothers yeah. Circus. So it takes 
some tropes and forms from Catholic funeral mass and turns them towards a politically transformative project. Um, the opening prayer of a Catholic mass is a paper mache ear presented, surrounded by the puppeteers, which has a sign over the opening of the ear yeah. that says closed. And we have to try various things in order to open it, either gesturing at it, blowing on it, wiggling our fingers at it, yelling at it. After a few tries, the closed sign flies away and mm. the opening prayer has been accomplished. Is that, I mean, is that a metaphor for openness to new ideas? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's also very true to the real function of an opening prayer in a Mass, or what it should be its function, is to open the congregation to the living ritual which is about to follow. And for us, that ritual is to confront some rotten idea in our culture, in our politics, and eventually uh, bury it. Uh, I assume you have to run. I think I do, unfortunately. Yeah, I really appreciate your time, Josh. Well, it's it's a real pleasure to speak with you. I'll do it again anytime. Cool. Um, and I look forward to seeing what what you do with the piece. Awesome. Josh, thank you so much, man. Okay, take really care, Mike. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much to Josh for his time and interest in this project. Anything that's referenced throughout this conversation, you can find all that listed in the show notes for this episode at samewavelengthpodcast.com. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, please do that. And if you can rate it and review it, that really helps me reach more folks and get the word out about Same Wavelength. Also, if you have any friends who you think might enjoy the podcast, please share it with them. That would be amazing. Make sure you're following the podcast on social media, on Instagram and Facebook at Same Wavelength Podcast, on Twitter, Same Wave Pod. I post clips of upcoming episodes, so make sure you're following those. This conversation was edited for brevity and clarity, though I made a sincere effort to retain Josh's words and ideas in their most honest form. The music that you heard throughout the conversation was used with permission by Josh and Brett and Puppet. The theme music that you're hearing right now and that you heard at the beginning of this episode is an instrumental version of a song by my band Bunk called Turn the World Around. Thank you to my bandmates Brett and Dave for being cool with me using this song for the podcast. On the next episode of Same Wavelength, David Crosby. This country's so polarized now, and I don't want to add to the toxic atmosphere. You know, first I was like, this son of a bitch. I was just like, couldn't believe what an asshole our president was, racist, obviously, misogynist. And I would just go off on him every night. And then I realized, you know, everybody's going off on everybody every night. Mm. And I started thinking, you know, I don't really want to be a part of that. So what I've been doing lately is trying to celebrate the country. I know we don't have a democracy right now. We've got a corporatocracy. But the idea is still the best one. 
I believe in our democracy still completely. I'm just looking for a way to go forward with it to fix it and make it better. I'm Michael Sokol. Thank you so much for listening to Same Wavelength. Be good to yourself and be good to those around you. Thank you.